Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hello again, this is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 343 of the FCPA Compliance Report. This episode of the FCPA Compliance Report is sponsored by ARC Group Publishing, publishers of 2016, the year in corporate FCPA enforcement, which has been recently released. You can find out more information on this new book and the ARC Group at arcark-group.com. Today I have back with me James Kukios. James is a partner at Morrison, Morrison & Forrester, and we talk about the firm's May Global Anti-Corruption Newsletter. We take a look at three very interesting topics. The first, the <coughs> detail of FCPA Assistant Chief B.J. Stelzvig to the U.K. Financial Enforcement Authorities. We consider the DOJ's move to terminate <coughs> HP's Deferred Prosecution Agreement and how that is accomplished. Finally, we consider a recent ruling in a civil forfeiture case demonstrates some of the challenges the Department of Justice has in obtaining foreign evidence. The episode comes in at uh, just over 20 minutes. I think you will find it a very interesting issue. The FCPA Compliance Report is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again, back for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, I have my fellow Michigander, at least undergrad, uh, James Kukios. James is a partner at Morrison Forrester, and he is part of the team that puts out a just most excellent top 10 international anti-corruption development newsletter each month. And we're here to talk about some of the developments from the May newsletter. So, James, thanks for taking the time to visit with me again. Thanks for having me back, Tom. So we had some, uh, I thought, really interesting, uh, as always, some interesting points you guys raised in uh, the main newsletter. And I really want to focus on three and kind of see where it might go, because I think you have the opportunity to really educate uh, the audience here, James. The first one was that a FCPA assistant chief was selected to detail to the UK financial enforcement authorities in May. Can you uh, tell us? kind of what that specifically meant, but more generally, how does how did someone like yourself work with overseas authorities, and what does it mean for the U.S. to actually physically put someone in London? Sure. So thanks, Tom. When I was at the fraud section, uh, it was when all the LIBOR and FX cases were being brought, and although that was in a different unit that I was in, uh, I, I observed that from the outside and then from a management role. At the same time, in the FCPA world, we were also starting to work pretty closely with the SFO. Um, the UK Bribery Act had just come online. The SFO was was picking up steam. So the fraud section um, over the years developed a very close working relationship with the serious fraud office in the UK, as well as the Financial Conduct Authority on these cases, these big cases involving FCPA, LIBOR, FX, and other market manipulation cases. It wasn't always even. Um, I think as in any relationship, whether it be uh, intra-agency within the United States or uh, 
uh, international with other countries. It wasn't always even. There were fits and starts. The agencies were feeling themselves out. They were kind of coming to an equilibrium about how we're going to um, work on cases together, divide things up, uh, how we're going to share resources. Personalities obviously get involved in, in, at times and things like that. So, But for the most part, I'd say uh, by far our number one uh, international ally in, in international cross-border white-collar crime fighting was the United Kingdom and these two agencies, the Serious Fraud Office and the Financial Conduct Authority. Uh, and there had been talk over the years about trying to see if there was a way to secund somebody from the fraud section to the UK authorities and vice versa to, to have somebody from the UK seconded to the fraud section to try to deepen that relationship, understand each other's processes a little better, um, because that's a big part of international cooperation. I, I, I talk a lot about the um, the OECD. One of the one of the most important things of the OECD working group on bribery is that four times a year uh, the countries get together. They talk about uh, different the best practices in terms of pursuing foreign bribery cases, but but even more importantly, developing relationships where people understand the various systems, they understand the various personalities. And once those things are become less uh, foreign, no pun intended, uh, they become a little less scary and people are more willing to work together and they understand the processes and, and the limitations and the opportunities. So I think this is a really great opportunity for the fraud section uh, and DOJ more broadly to deepen that relationship with the UK authorities, to, uh, to have an exchange of information, an exchange of uh, opinions, an exchange of techniques, and understand how the two um, sides of the Atlantic work together and can deepen that relationship even more. So this particular detail, um, uh, it's uh, BJ Stiglitz, who's one of the FCPA assistant chiefs, who is also prior to becoming an FCPA assistant chief, was also a securities and financial fraud assistant chief. So he's, he's actually been in both groups at the fraud section, uh, the more general um, fraud unit and the FCPA unit, um, to go over there and work for one year for the with the Financial Conduct Authority, and then another year with the Serious Fraud Office, and then in the third year, come back and really try to impart the lessons learned to DOJ so DOJ can, can understand their, our, our, uh, the compatriots from across the Atlantic and really try to deepen that relationship across the organization. So I think it's a, it's a very interesting uh, position. Um, when I was at the fraud section, there were a lot of hurdles that needed to be crossed. Um, things as simple as how do you get a security clearance for somebody from another country? Um, how do you pay somebody who's a who's a um, employee of a foreign government? Uh, a lot of logistical issues that you don't really think about. It's a it's a comes across as a great idea, but how do you actually implement that idea logistically with all these things? So apparently they figured out how to do it, and um, BJ is going to go over in the next uh, month or so uh, and and start that detail. So I think it's a very interesting development. Is that something that uh, you think would really move um, forward U.S. investigations, U.K. investigations, or really sort of both? Yeah, definitely. I think so. We One of the um, uh, positions that already is there is DOJ has legal attaches uh, or justice attaches, uh, over, legal attaches, the FBI word, uh, in, in the U.K., and those folks um, have been invaluable to helping bridge the gap between the UK and the US in terms of evidence gathering, things like that. So this is just another resource 
to be even more directly involved in the two um, prosecuting agencies. Uh, so I think it's going to help drive both um, prosecutions and investigations by the UK and by the US. There's going to have to be some walls set up and some some issues. Uh, there's issues, for example, with compelled testimony in the UK that can cause problems for the US. And so they're going to have to figure out ways if BJ is actually working on cases to, to maneuver around those. But that process started several years ago in um, parallel investigations anyway. So I think overall, they're going to have some kinks to work out, but it's going to uh, be a positive for both sides in terms of advancing investigations and advancing prosecutions. James, next you've got a, a really interesting um, uh, information on the Hewlett-Packard FCPA enforcement from, I think, uh, 2014. And it's interesting for a lot of reasons. Hewlett-Packard engaged in what I thought was pretty egregious conduct. Nevertheless, at the time the DPA was uh, entered into, they received what I thought was significant credit or significant downward credit um, for the fine that they paid. Uh, which led perhaps myself and others to conclude that they had done really an exemplary amount of uh, remediation and cooperation with the government going forward. Now, this was before the pilot program and before all of those factors were laid out. So that in and of itself is interesting. But uh, I haven't really had the chance to visit with anyone about, uh, such as yourself, about what really happens when a DPA ends. Uh, I should fully disclose that I worked with a, at a company that actually pled guilty to a DPA, so I know how that one ended. But how does a DPA end? Uh, how does uh, the DOJ work after the DPA is signed? What was the role you had when you were in the fraud section? Could you maybe explain all of those things to us? Sure. So one interesting thing about a DPA as opposed to an NPA, uh, as you know, Tom, is the fact that it's filed in court. Uh, there's actually a charging document filed in court. The, the deferred prosecution agreement is also filed in court. And so unlike an NPA, which is can kind of expire without any process because it's an informal agreement, basically a contract between the government and the um, defendant, it, with a DPA, you actually have to go through a formal process to, to terminate the prosecution and get it off the court's dockets. And and if you've ever been a law clerk or anything like that, you know judges don't like to have cases sit on their dockets for a long time either because that messes up their stats. Um, so it's important to, to go through that process to get it formal process and get it off the docket. Um, so usually what happens in a DPA, there's either a monitorship or there's a self-reporting requirement. Uh, and what will happen is periodically either the monitor or the company will provide reports to DOJ. DOJ will review them see how things are going. Is the remediation on track? Have new problems arisen or been discovered? And there's kind of a constant dialogue with the company through these mechanisms. Ideally, you'd find out uh, along the way if there's any problems and they'd be fixed. We've seen in a couple cases, including the one you worked on, Tom, um, that <laughs> some of the problems don't go away. Right. And and so what happens is sometimes the company ends up pleading guilty, like your experience. Other times the DPA is extended uh, for a period of time to give the company a little bit more chance to get it right. Or if there's a couple of things that just need to be chased down from an investigative standpoint to give DOJ the comfort that these problems have been resolved. On the other hand, if things go right, um, there's been this constant periodic conversation between the company and DOJ. And when it gets time for the uh, DPA to expire in its own terms. They're usually two or three years. 
um, the comp- the uh, government goes in and f- actually files a motion with the court seeking to terminate the DPA and dismiss the charging document and end the prosecution. So that's what happened in the Hewlett-Packard case. Uh, HP was presumably reporting periodically. Things were going well. And DOJ decided that HP had abided by all the terms of the agreement and that there was no reason to extend it. And so they went through the formal process of filing a motion to end the deferred prosecution agreement term. And so that cleans it off the court's docket. Does it clean it out of the the docket of the uh, uh, fraud section attorney handling it as well? It does. It's done at that point. Um, there may be other agreements. Uh, there's there's three different um, resolutions as a package with HP, uh, and I think to a certain extent, um, there's a relationship that's usually developed over the years. So if a company that's been under DPA has another issue. Uh, they may call that prosecutor again and say, hey, we need to report, even though the DPA is over, we need to report something to you and and bring that forward. And of course, prosecutors change over time. So it may not be the exact same prosecutor um, that started out with three years ago, maybe a different one at this point. But there's, generally speaking, uh, a dialogue going on between the company and and the fraud section on these issues. James, the next one up is a very interesting civil forfeiture case out of the Southern District of New York. And um, But what really intrigued me about the uh, write-up in the firm newsletter was it, it really spoke to some of the difficulties, uh, at least I would perceive from the outside, in obtaining uh, discoverable and, more importantly, admissible evidence uh, that can be used in a U.S. court. And here... Um, The uh, court allowed the admission of certain evidence, notwithstanding the documents lacked requisite certifications under the federal rules of evidence. So I was wondering if you might be able to use this to explain to us kind of the difficulty that someone like yourself would have in getting admissible evidence, let alone discoverable evidence. Well, Tom, I got to tell you, I'm very happy that you enjoyed this entry because this is probably in two and a half years of doing these, one of my top five favorite ones. Uh, Great. Because, because the one thing that always stuck in my craw a little bit was when people would say these FCPA cases are so easy because the companies just fork over evidence, period, full stop. And that was not my experience at the fraud section. There's no doubt that there are companies that are very forthcoming, that assist the prosecutors, bring forth evidence from overseas, no doubt about it, and hopefully they get rewarded the way they should. Uh, but there are other cases. Number one, even in those cases, uh, there's only uh, so much a company can provide to you. For example, a company cannot provide to you bank accounts for a third party because they don't have them. They can't provide to you files from a third party because they don't have access to them. They can only provide what they have on their own um, possession and control. And so even in the ideal case where the company is cooperating, there are times where a prosecutor needs to go to a foreign country and try to get the evidence to finish the case off, especially against an individual. And there are other cases where the company is not cooperating, or maybe there is no corporate defendant, and you're just going against an individual, and you need to go to a foreign country to try to get the evidence. It is not easy. There are some countries, like the UK that we talked about before, that tend to be fairly easy to get evidence from. There are uh, number one law enforcement partner when it comes to foreign bribery investigations. We have similar systems. We have a long track record. It tends to be fairly smooth going when it's a UK, US. Switzerland is another good example. 
they obviously have data privacy laws, but Swiss, the Swiss authorities and DOJ have been working together for a long time. Mexico and drug cases, things like that. There, there are certain relationships there that, that happen. When you're talking about a country that historically does not like or trust the United States, it is, and, and oftentimes those are very corrupt countries, it is very difficult sometimes to make a case against individuals in there by getting documents from overseas. And I think this case is a perfect example. Uh, according to the court's ruling, DOJ um, at, filed a, a mutual legal assistance treaty request with Russia, which is a member of the OCD working group on bribery, and is supposed to uh, you know, uh, cooperate in bribery schemes and things like that. But the problem with these allegations were <clears throat> they were trying to get um, evidence of a scheme involving alleged uh, bribery of Russian officials. So obviously, when you've got a country that doesn't trust the United States, whether it's their own officials that are, that are being implicated, um, they're not always happy to share that evidence. And so what happened in this case is uh, the prosecutors, in this case, it was a civil forfeiture action, but the prosecutors filed an MLAD to try to get um, evidence of a bribery scheme of Russian officials. And not only did the Russian authorities not provide the requested documents, uh, but if you read the court's ruling, what they did provide, what the Russian Federation did provide was, quote, a selection of non-Germane documents and a letter purporting to exonerate all Russian officials and uh, uh, company personnel. And the court actually went so far as to describe the evidence that the uh, Russian Federation uh, provided as, quote, a counter-narrative to the prosecution's theory of liability. Uh, and so I just think this is a great little microcosm to show that um, doing cross-border prosecutions, especially in foreign bribery cases, uh, is very difficult because so many times it, it depends on uh, getting that evidence from overseas. The linchpin, the, you know, the money was paid overseas, the bank account is overseas, the, the middleman is overseas, sort of that, that key piece of evidence that you need to bring some of these cases home or overseas. And if you can't get them from a foreign jurisdiction, your prosecution is essentially over. And so I just think even though this was not an FCPA case per se, and even though it didn't involve a, a, an FCPA prosecution per se, I think it really nicely illustrates the challenges that uh, prosecutors face in trying to build these cases. Number one, I would hope that would answer some of the critics uh, of DOJ um, not always bringing cases against individuals, because I can tell you that this was this happened a lot. Um, but number two, I think it also is important for companies to know. Uh, not that I'm encouraging any companies to not provide evidence and not cooperate. It's obviously a case-by-case -case decision. But if you're dealing in China, if you're dealing in Russia, if you're dealing in uh, maybe a, a country that's not historically a friend of the United States or an ally or doesn't trust the U.S. system, decisions should be made about based on knowing about DOJ's ability to gather evidence overseas, that should inform your decision going forward about how much you're going to cooperate and, and how much you're going to do things. Again, does not mean it's right not to cooperate. It's a case-by-case -case decision, obviously, uh, for the company. But I think these are important things for companies to consider when they're weighing that calculus of how much do I cooperate, do I self-disclose, and those kind of very difficult corporate decisions.
Well, James, unfortunately, we're uh, at the end of our time, but I wanted to thank you again for uh, uh, visiting with me today. I've been visiting with James Kukios, partner in Morrison Forrester, who is uh, leads the uh, firm's uh, or uh, as part of the firm's uh, FCPA and white collar practice. But more importantly, for for the listeners to this podcast, it leads the um, publication of the firm's monthly top 10 international anti-corruption developments. We've been talking about the May issue. I'm going to link to it in the show notes, but I'd suggest you sign up for it so you can get it uh, in the email when it's released like I do. James, uh, thanks a lot, and I look forward to uh, seeing what you guys come up with for June. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you again for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you've listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would Hope you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and also help spread the word about one of the top podcasts that comes out weekly on all things FCPA and compliance related. Also, if you have any questions, please feel free to contact me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. As I mentioned in the opening, the FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network, which I rolled out earlier this month. I now have two podcasts which come out daily, and I'm sure there is one which will both entertain you and provide you the information you need. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, and I hope that you will join me for another episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.